Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew once again, Matthew 13. And uh, if you want to find that in the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 974. Matthew 13 or 974 in the Bible in the pew in front of you. And I'll tell you what, because it is, well, we'll go ahead and read through the whole text together, but I'll read as you just follow along in your copy of the word this morning. It says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And so at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. You see, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, but he feared the people because they had held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Kind of a gruesome scene, but not an uncommon scene in the ancient days, especially when you have a household that is debaucherous as Herod's household was. Before we get into our text this morning, I, I kind of want to just uh, mention very quickly uh, many of us are fascinated with the book of Revelation, I know, and, and when you read the first three chapters of Revelation, you know, that's kind of always the chapters we kind of want to skip through to get to the good stuff, right? Uh, but um, there's something very interesting that happens because in the first chapter of Revelation, you have this awesome vision of Christ, and he has given all of these different descriptions that, of who he is and how he is overseeing the church. And what is interesting about that is, is, is as you go through those seven letters to the churches to either commend them or to correct them for what they are doing, either right or wrong, one of the first things you notice in every single letter is that he says to the angel of the church at whichever one, and then he begins, this is the one who, and they give a description that goes back to the vision of chapter one. 
And so like, for instance, he tells the church at Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, to Smyrna, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, to Pergamum, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And all of these uh, descriptions of Christ go back to that first vision, that word for word, And the idea is simply this, is that if a church wants to know who they are and if a church wants to know what to do, they need to have a vision and an understanding of who Christ is. That's the idea. That is the whole basis of the book of Revelation. You know, all of the things that are controversial and is it gonna happen this way? Is it gonna happen that way? Uh, We can debate all those all day long, but the one thing the book of Revelation does give us is a high and exalted view of Jesus Christ. And when we have that, we will be the kind of church that pleases him. And that's what we're looking at this morning because I believe that the church is facing an identity crisis in America today. We have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten what it is that we are supposed to be about. For a lot of people, church is weekend entertainment. They come and they come for the lights and they come for an experience. They come for the the emotion that they get out of it. They come for all of those things. For some people, the church is community organizers. And their purpose is to serve kind of social justice out into the world. For some, church is merely sentimental. And you can talk to people, and I've talked to people, and they'll say, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a member of that church. I've, I've had my name on the roll of that church for 40 years. Hadn't been there in 30. But I've had my name on the roll, and that's my church, and I love my church. You'll, you'll talk to people who actually say things like that. And much of this is because we have largely adopted cultural values that have crept their way into the church. We will see this in a lot of different ways. Even among us pastors, we have, today we have celebrity preachers that, you know, we'll go to a conference and we don't even know what the conference is about, but we know so-and-so is speaking there. And so we'll go and listen to it because we want to hear so-and-so. Just like in the old days where you didn't even know what the, you didn't even know what the movie was about, but you went and saw it because the Duke was in it, right? <laughs> how, many, how many of you guys, you young guys, you know who the Duke was? Yeah. John Wayne, brother. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so you, you didn't even know what it was about. And we have that kind of celebrity culture happening among pastors as well that, that we see that. We have celebrity bloggers. We, have, we even have social you know, influencers, whatever, whatever those guys are called. And we have that in the Christian world as well. And if you, if you have anything you want to believe, all you got to do is find a blogger who backs you up and he gives credence to whatever it is. What is the church? What is it that we are actually here to do? And what, we, what has happened here, beloved, is that we have come to a very new section of Matthew. I just wanna back up and kind of give you the forest for a moment that Matthew is divided into five major discourses of Christ. Matthew presents Christ as a king, and so Matthew focuses on his sermons. It's just like when we were young and the president was on, your night was shot. All your shows were canceled because everybody wants to know what a king says, right? And so Matthew focuses his, his gospel on these five uh, discourses, these five sermons that he gives, and we just finished the third one. 
And each one of them ends with this phrase that we found in verse uh, 53. When Jesus had finished these, sometimes it says sayings, sometimes it says teachings, and here it says parables. But that is a major dividing point in the Gospel of Matthew. And he, and he always begins with a, with a series of narratives that are going to kind of develop the theme that Jesus is going to develop in his next discourse. And his next discourse, and by the way, this is the longest section, and his next discourse happens in Matthew 18, where it is all about the covenant community. And what we see in these narratives is that we're seeing that the shaping of the church. In fact, do you realize that in all four gospels, the word church, ecclesia, that word appears only twice in all four gospels, and guess where both of them show up in this section of Matthew? That's not a coincidence. Something else we're gonna see is that as Jesus is ministering, he's, this is the last time we're gonna see him in a synagogue this morning. In Matthew, we're gonna start seeing him operating outside of the, of the structural and official uh, formats of Judaism because we're starting to see that kind of separation come out. So all of those things will help you understand how Matthew is shaping what the church is supposed to be. Matthew is a discipleship manual that was written to the first church, and he's writing and collecting these narratives together to instruct the church how we are to act and how we are to live as Christians. And so in this next section, it is all about the community of the disciple, the community of the disciple. And so... This morning, as we begin to see Christ kind of moving away, this separation taking place between the structures of Judaism, we're gonna see this morning that there are two examples that are given to us in his rejection. Beloved, there's continued opposition and confusion about him. Just like today, there is continuing confusion and growing opposition against the church and our nation. And we have to be careful not to adopt cultural mentalities in our church or we're not gonna survive that. And so this morning, because of the inroads of these cultural mentalities, we must recognize that we are first and foremost a community of Christ, but part of that means, one implication of that is that we are a counter-cultural community. We are a counter-cultural community. And what it is, is it about the culture that we're concerned about? Well, we're gonna see this morning in this text, we're gonna see three cultural dangers that we need to beware. Three cultural dangers that we need to beware. We need to beware familiarity. We need to beware confusion. And we need to beware fickleness. I was trying to stick with the F, so we'll, we'll get there. But we need to avoid familiarity, confusion, and fickleness. And so let's look this morning, beginning in verse 54. We must, as a church, we must beware of familiarity. 
We must beware of familiarity. So uh, as we see in verse uh, 53, Jesus, he finishes the parables in the house that uh, he was in, and now he goes and he departs from there, and he goes to his hometown. And Matthew doesn't name it, but we know that his hometown is Nazareth. It is about 25 miles, give or take, from uh, the Sea of Galilee. It, um, it actually rests on top of a hill. And it's a really cool place to go to because you can kind of see the hill and it kind of overlooks uh, the plain of, of Galilee and, it, and you can see the, the, the lake of Galilee from there. It's a really cool place to visit. It's, it's a thriving home, it's a thriving city today. But, uh, but back then, it was really just a little village that was, that was built on top of this hill. And it says here, in fact, Luke tells us that as it was his custom on Saturday, he goes to synagogue and, uh, and he attends the service. By the way, I get tickled when people say, well, I don't really wanna go to church because I don't get much out of it. Jesus went to church. And if anybody didn't get much from the preaching that was coming at him in church, it was Jesus. So, you know, just, <laughs> if you wanna say you're better than Jesus, that's fine, but uh, I, that's not, a, that's not a, a place I'd wanna stand. So, so, and it's very normal that the synagogue is, is, is kind of similar to the way church runs, you know, uh, you have singing, you have prayers, you have all that, uh, but there's a little differences though, and one of the differences is that they really didn't depend on the priest. Uh, it was all ran by, um, by locals, and, and very often whenever, um, whenever there wasn't a visiting priest available, they would ask one of the local men, or, or sometimes even the women, believe it or not, but they would, they would ask them to stand, and they would read the scripture, and they, would, and they would pronounce the blessing, and if there was a visiting rabbi, then there would be kind of a sermon or a homily, if you will. And so Jesus is visiting, he's a local boy, they hear that he's teaching, and so naturally he's asked to give the reading that day, and uh, Matthew really doesn't give us any, any, uh, any details about uh, what he reads or what he's doing, you can get those in Luke, but that's not pertinent to Matthew's purpose here. Instead, what he does tell us is that at his teaching, the people were astonished, they were shocked at his teaching. And this is kind of a normal reaction that you get whenever Jesus teaches, but, but in this case, I think it's especially pertinent that they are, they are shocked at what this man is saying. Why? Because they're asking, where in the world did this local boy get all of this wisdom and all of these miraculous powers? I remember when, uh, when we candidated here, um, and the very first time my kids came to Batesville with us, and, and naturally the very first thing they wanna know is where the McDonald's is. And so we're driving into town and we tell them, look, there's McDonald's right there. And I remember there was a, at that time, some of you new guys won't remember this, but, but you guys who have been here for a long time, you, know, you remember the race car that used to be on top of the McDonald's sign, right? And so they saw that, and they just thought that was the coolest thing. And I remember thinking, well, why is, why is there a race car on top of the McDonald's sign? And I didn't notice the sign coming into town. I didn't notice the car dealerships. But you all know, don't you, because there's a local boy who made good, right? Mark Martin. Sorry, I don't know much about NASCAR, but, uh, but I hear he was pretty good, so... And, uh, and anyway, and, and local, local towns, I mean, he's a local boy who did good, and we're proud of Mark Martin, aren't we? We're proud to say that this is one of ours, right? So you would think that Nazareth, that Jesus, that they would be proud of a local boy who's done good. But that's not what happens at all. 
In fact, it's just the opposite. They, they barrage these questions. Where does this man, is, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not, his Mary, is not his mother called Mary, his brothers? James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, his sisters, they're all still living among us. Where did this man get all of these things? You can almost hear the derision in those questions, can't you? Notice they don't call him by his name. They, they know all the names of his family, but you notice there's two names they don't say. Where did, is this not the carpenter's son? Hey, his name is Joseph. But they don't say that. And where did this man get this kind of stuff? Do you hear kind of some sarcasm and some uh, almost right there kind of a degree of separation? Can you imagine the derision and the scandal that must have developed around Jesus' birth? And people in Nazareth knew all about that. They were there. And if anyone should have been given great wisdom and great miraculous powers from God, why this product of what they can only assume was sin, right? And so there's, they're, they're offended by this. Offended by this so much so, Matthew doesn't tell us, but in Luke, they actually try to go to that hill and push them off the hill. They're so offended by it. Their familiarity with Christ caused them to reject him. Their familiarity with him. And so, you know, they say that familiarity breeds contempt. I don't know about that. But I know it does breed ignorance. I know it does breed carelessness. I know it does breed neglect. I know it does breed recklessness. It's just like, you know, you've pulled out of your driveway in your car a hundred thousand times, twice, three, four times a day, and there's never a car coming when you back out of, their, out of your driveway until there is, right? Or it's like you're working on the heavy machinery and, and you've put this material in the machines a thousand times, and now with how familiar with it, you're just careless and you make a stupid mistake. And now you're on... Now you're on a, a disability. Yeah, that could happen. Guys, familiarity can be deadly. Familiarity can be deadly both to your body, but also to your soul. And this is one of the problems that I think we have living in the so-called Bible Belt is because we are an area that is saturated with churches. I mean, you shake a tree, three or four preachers are gonna fall out of it here. Around here, you wake up craving fried chicken. It's a call to preach. And, you, um, and, and we're just saturated with the gospel. And everyone who is around here, who lives around here, we've heard the gospel again and again and again. And we're so familiar with it that we can mistake familiarity with the gospel with genuine repentance and genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And we have to guard against that. We have to guard against that familiarity. We can never assume that just because someone is living based on, on Christian values, moral convictions, they vote their values, they do all of those things right, they have all of the cliches, beloved, we cannot just assume that they are genuine believers in Christ. 
especially not in this area, especially not in this area, because familiarity can be deadly. And we must not assume that familiarity with the gospel means genuine belief, genuine repentance, and genuine surrender to the Lordship of Christ. I talk to people all the time and I, I, I tell them, I, I share with them the details of the gospel and they're like, oh yeah, I heard that when I was nine years old. I, I prayed a prayer and I got wet. and Yeah, I got all that down. But there's no, there's no fruit. There's nothing in their life that suggests that they are genuine believers. There's no spiritual fruit that is coming out of their lives. And I'm not one to judge someone's heart, but the fruit is showing The fruit is showing. Yeah, you may know all that, but have you put your trust in Christ alone for forgiveness of your sins? Have you submitted to him as Lord? Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned away from your self-rule? In fact, I fear that there may be some of you here this morning that if you were asked all the questions of how to be saved, you have all the answers, but you've never really put your faith in it. You have all the facts. You know all the right answers. Maybe you can even quote uh, precise points of doctrine. Maybe you can even give us a detailed history of the, of the Reformation or, or the Great Awakening, or maybe you even have favorite preachers you like to listen to, but when you know all the answers, but you don't know Christ. And I fear that there might even be some of you here this morning that that is where you are. And beloved, please examine yourselves. Examine your heart to know that you are truly in the faith, that you have truly repented of your sin. Do you have a desire to grow in the Lord? Do you have a growing love for the brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have a growing hatred of sin? These are all the things that 1 John tells us that are characteristic of a genuine believer. Do you have those things? Do you see them? I'm not asking you if you're perfect but I'm asking you if you're growing. Is the fruit of the Spirit a growing influence in your life? Or have you mistaken familiarity with the truth as genuine faith? And so we must examine ourselves. This is what happens when we put our faith in church culture to save us and not in the gospel of Christ. And so we must have that. We must avoid, we must beware familiarity. And God forbid that we would be a church that would, that would promote familiarity. That we would just assume that everyone who comes because they act right, they must be saved. We can never do that, brother. We can never do that, sisters. We must know the Lord. That's in church culture. But what about the broader culture? What about that? We see in verses one and two that we must not only beware familiarity, but we must beware confusion. We must beware confusion. Look at Herod. He says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. Now, I'm not even going to attempt to try and describe to you who this Herod is. They are a big, convoluted, confusing family, and they all went by the same name. And so... Just suffice it to say, this is not the Herod we read about in Matthew 2, and it's not the Herod you're gonna read about in Acts. 
It's a different Herod. Just leave it at that, all right? That's all you need to know for the purposes this morning. Uh, we could spend a whole year trying to d- figure out the Herods, and uh, some, of, some of us would still be confused. So I took, a, I took basically a whole class on it. Uh, for a week, we discussed the Herods, and I'm like, who are these people? I thought my family was messed up. These guys were messed up, all right? If ever you wanna feel better about how your family's doing, don't watch soap operas, read about the Herods, and you'll feel great, I promise you. And so Herod, he said to his servants in verse two, that this is John the Baptist who has risen from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. I, uh, I sense a little guilty conscience there. But not only that, Herod hears about all his fame and he believes that Christ then must be the reincarnated John the Baptist. By the way, he wasn't the only one. This was actually kind of a common view when later on in Matthew chapter 16, when we're building the confession of the church, Jesus, one of the first questions he's gonna ask is, who do people say I am? And the disciples are gonna say, uh, some of them say John the Baptist. So this is actually a, a fairly popular view in the area, right? And so Herod is, is kind of kind of, of uh, of that opinion. And even though Herod really hated him, he had kind of a begrudging respect for him. We, we see that in Luke here, or excuse me, in Mark. He would actually go down and listen to, to uh, John preach at him. <laughs> you know, you, you hear some of these guys sometimes, you know, they're, uh, they're kind of self-flagellators in church. They, they, they're like, you know, I don't feel like I've been to church unless I leave mad. You know, that, that's, kind of what, that's kind of the way Herod's doing this. He's like, he wants to be preached at, you know? And so, um, and so Herod enjoyed listen, listening to John, and I really feel like there's probably a sense of guilty conscience here. But um, what's really more important is, is this idea of reincarnation. See, we really have no evidence that either the Greeks or the Jews believed in reincarnation. There's none whatsoever. And so, and so a lot of people will look at this and say, well, this is just kind of added by the church later on when reincarnation became popular. But actually, no, what we do have is evidence that even though it wasn't an official dogma, either of the Greeks or the Jews, it was a popular superstition among the people. So, so think like Bigfoot, all right? Some of you are like, that's not a superstition. Just think Bigfoot, okay? Uh, it's a popular superstition that is not really official. You know, we have no scientific name for, for Bigfoot, but a lot of people believe in Bigfoot, right? Well, in the same way, you don't really have an official dogma or official doctrine of reincarnation, but a lot of people believe in reincarnation. And that's, that's what Herod is kind of believing here. And so what he's doing, he believed in... Uh, in, in the resurrection, as the Jews did teach, or at least the Pharisees taught, he did believe in that, but he's kind of blending that with kind of popular superstition. And so you have here that, that Herod says, okay, I believe that John the Baptist has raised from the dead, and in doing so, he has reincarnated as now this Jesus of Nazareth. And it's that blending of, of Jewish good Old Testament doctrine with popular superstition. Taking some of the truths of scripture and blending them with popular ideas from the culture. 
We see warnings about not doing this all throughout the scriptures. In fact, um, if you're ever reading the law and you come across uh, verses that, that seem kind of weird, you know, like for example, uh, do not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. What in the world is that about, okay? Well, it's not forbidding you to eat cheeseburgers, I promise. What it is doing is that there was a pagan practice, an Egyptian practice that was behind that, right? Uh, like for example, another, another law is do not wear clothing that's made of two kinds of material. How many of you are disobeying that command this morning? Probably all of us, right? Why not? Well, once again, there was a, a pagan mentality behind that. And so, so there's all these rules, all these regulations throughout the law, and we see this on through the word, that we are not to synchronize the worship of God with the practices of pagan culture. We are not to take the ways that culture believes and blend them or sync them with the church. <laughs> Do not adopt these practices or sink the beliefs of the culture with your faith. It is disastrous. And it comes into all kinds of problems. This is the issue when I hear people say, you know, uh, I appreciate a church that teaches. I appreciate a church that gets into all the doctrine and stuff. But, but really, I don't need all that. I just love Jesus. Well, which Jesus? Is it the Jesus of Mormonism? Is it the Jesus of liberalism? Is it the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses? Is it the Jesus of Islam? They believe in Jesus. Is it any of those Jesuses? Or my guess, it might be a Jesus of your own imagination. But whatever Jesus it is, if it is not the Jesus who reveals himself in this book, it is another Jesus and it is another gospel. And so uh, that's the danger with that kind of mentality. I'm, I'm not saying that, that, it, that it doesn't sound good. It sounds right, but it's dangerous. If they preach another Jesus, they preach another gospel. And so we must make sure that we are preaching the Jesus. Uh, why is this so important? Let me, let me, give, you a, let me give you just kind of something that, that I saw, and, I, and I'm not trying to make this man sound, uh, I'm not trying to badmouth this gentleman. I don't blame him. Really, if I blame anyone, I blame the church that didn't teach him better. But uh, I was visiting a church, and uh, we were sitting in Sunday school, and, and I was actually candidating as a youth minister, and, uh, and I just kind of wanted to hear um, kind of how the teens are being taught. And so I'm sitting in the Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher, I don't even remember what the lessons were on, but, uh, but he said uh, somehow he got on angels, and he talked about cherubim. And, he guys, and he's like, guys, you know what cherubim are. They're these little babies that have little wings on their back. And, they're, and, and I'm saying this verbatim. They're buzzing around heaven like mosquitoes. And, and at first, we all kind of laughed because we thought he was joking. But then he says, and I quote, don't laugh. It's in the Bible. Look it up. Now, what's, what's the big deal about that? I mean, what's wrong with believing that angels are 
little babies with wings buzzing around heaven like mosquitoes. But beloved, do you know what a real cherub is? Have you read Ezekiel? Have you seen what these guys are? They are covered in fire. They are covered in eyes. They have four faces pointing all four directions. They have four wings with two. They bow their body. They cover their body in humility before God. And with two, they fly. These are awesome creatures. And a real cherub, if he was to show up in the middle of the room right now, you know what every single one of us would do? We would fall on our face in fear. And why is that so important for us to know? Because, because when you consider how awesome these guys are, and yet these guys fall down in fear before the presence of God, how much greater must God be? And that is what theology does for you. It gives you a high view of God. It exalts your worship. If you want to deepen your worship, deepen your theology. You don't have to add lights and smoke machines and, and all of this stuff. Deepen your theology and I guarantee you, your heart will go as high as worship as it goes in deep and your knowledge of God. That's why we need theology. Real theology gives you a high view of God. If they preach another Jesus, they preach another gospel. And the deeper we go, the more we understand Christ, the more we will love him. And the more we'll see ourselves. And the less we'll want to be man-centered in our church. And the more we'll want to be God-centered in everything we do. That's the theology of worship right there. We don't want to sing all these man-centered songs that are out there that are giving people feel-goods every week. We want to sing songs that are grounded in the truth, written by people who take responsibility for what they write because they want to take the church high, the very presence of God. We guard ourselves from the encroaching of the world's ideas of who Christ is, and we preach only the Christ who is revealed to us in Scripture. We preach it, we sing it, we pray it, we talk about it, we, we teach it. Everything we do centered on the revelation of God, of who he is. Amen? That's our vision here. That's why we need the teaching of scripture because just as deadly as familiarity can be, so can confusion. So can confusion. If you've placed your faith in another Jesus, beloved, don't get your theology from Hollywood. Don't get your theology from politicians and please don't get your theology from packages of toilet paper. Get your theology from the word. Angel soft toilet paper. That's right. I see some of you. <laughs> we buy the cheap brands. I'm, I'm just saying. So, <laughs> saw some of you going over there. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? <laughs> Where was I? All right. I probably shouldn't go there again. Let's go on. Verses three through 12. We must beware 
of familiarity. We must beware of confusion. We must beware of fickleness. Matthew, like other gospels, he, he kind of moves into a flashback and kind of tells us what happened to John. We already knew that John was arrested. We saw that in, in chapter 11, verses one through six. And now we learn of his fate. And so, and again, this is just kind of reflective of some of that sordid history I told you about. Uh, this Herod wanted to marry his, uh, his brother's wife and they made an agreement to do so. And, and, uh, and we know from Josephus there was actually fighting, physical fighting that happened. And, and this Herod went and told mom, you know, he went and told Rome and Rome backed him because, and, and so he kind of won the battle and he got Herodias. It was scandalous, scandalous in the nation. And John had preached against it and so Herod had put him in prison. And Matthew tells us that he wanted to put him to death. Of course, we know from Luke that was mostly because Herodias kept uh, asking him to do so. But so he holds a banquet and his stepdaughter, now, now this is how sordid this is, his stepdaughter dances for the banquet. And we can only imagine what kind of dance it must have been. And that's all we'll say about that. By the way, I have heard, uh, when I was growing up, people used to use this text as a kind of a proof text to say that Christians shouldn't be involved in dancing. Um, uh, we certainly shouldn't be involved in this kind of dancing, but <laughs> um, I think that's missing the point. Uh, that's not really what this text is talking about. It's, it's, um, it's really forecasting what's gonna happen to Christ it's forecasting what's gonna to happen to believers when we live for Christ. And it's also fulfilling what Christ has already said in verse 57, that a prophet is without honor except in his hometown. Excuse me, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, in his own household. John joins the, the litany of prophets that have been killed by the nation. And really, the, really what we see here is the end of the Old Testament prophetic office. There will never be another Old Testament prophet after this. And so we see the ending of that. But the bigger point here, and, and I, I, I didn't point it out before, but I wanna go back to what Jesus said, that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown or in his own house. And as, and as you look through this text, look at verse nine. Herod was grieved. He was afraid to do this. But do you notice what it says? The, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest. You have to remember, this is an honor-shame community. And Herod was concerned. Uh, the whole community worked on the currency of honor or shame. One of the reasons why I believe Nazareth rejected Christ is because they saw this man up here who had all of this shame of his scandalous birth and now he's preaching all these things and doing all of these things and this is a man who has shame. He should not be doing this. Oh, how little did they know the extent of shame that Jesus was gonna take on our behalf. Aren't you glad of that? 
And yet Herod here, he is concerned about his honor. And so this idea of honor, shame comes up again. And even though Herod is grieved and does not want to do this, he has given an oath. And it was given before his guest. And he cannot risk cultural shame. He has to carry it through. He was more concerned about his personal honor before his guest than what he was in doing the right thing. And that's what we mean by fickleness. Where we're more concerned about the cultural values and being viewed, being viewed with uh, positively in the culture. We're more concerned about that than we are about obeying God. That's fickle. And it will always carry into fickleness. This is the kind of fickleness we're talking about. No, we don't, we don't quite live under the same stringent ideas as honor and shame today. We don't do that. But we still look for respect from others. We still long for respectability. We still want to look for others' approvals and we do all kinds of things to gain approval. You remember that, you remember that show, Fear Factor? And all the gross things that they would do just to get their 15 minutes on television. All, all, we, would, all we do, we, we long for this, for this approval from the community. We long for this approval from others. And oftentimes we long for it so much that we're willing to disobey God. Even as a church, we're willing to disobey God in order to have the approval of the outside. And beloved, listen, the days where you can earn social capital by going to church, those days are great. Those days are disappearing. And sooner or later, it is actually going to be the opposite of earning social capital to obey God. It's already happening. There, are, there, are, there is one I know of, and there may be more, but there is one I know of in this church who lost a job opportunity, they, they should have been a shoe in But they found out that they were a member of this church and they know our stand on social issues. And for whatever reason, we can't say this for sure, but for whatever reason, she was not hired. That's already happened in our community. That's happening in Batesville, Arkansas. And trust me, there is coming a day where the social capital you used to earn by going to church, now the social capital is all gonna be not going to church or at least not going to church that refuses to compromise. Not going to a church that stands on the word of God. That's going away. Beloved, we must be, we must beware of fickleness. We must beware, the days of the Bible Belt are over. And therefore, we must take our stand. A cultural faith is not gonna help you take a stand against the pressures of the culture that turns against the faith. We have to stand on the word of God. By the way, that doesn't mean that we, that we become an offense. That doesn't mean that we do it in a, we don't, we don't be jerks about it, okay? Don't be a jerk, just, just don't. I'm not saying that. We do it lovingly, we do it gently. And understand, there, there may come a time 
that we have to decide, are we going to obey God or are we gonna please people? In fact, here's what Paul says in Galatians 1.10. He, he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or God? If I'm trying to please man, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Beloved, we have to decide, are we gonna serve the approval of the outside world or are we going to serve Christ? What good is it if we again all the riches, if we fill our barns with the approval of all the people in the community, but we lose our soul? What good is that? What profit is that to us? And so we must understand that the church is a countercultural community. We confess Christ and we are not after the things that the world is after. We are not about the things that the world is about. We confess and we serve a living savior. And by our testimony, others will see and they will know that Christ is real. I don't know if you've ever heard the testimony of Menno Simmons. <clears throat> Menno Simmons is famous because of the, uh, of the line of churches that, of the Anabaptist tradition that, that came from him called the Mennonites. It's where they get their name. Menno Simmons was saved watching another Anabaptist, a Swiss Anabaptist, Balthazar Hubmeyer, being burned at the stake. Menno Simmons was a Catholic priest, and as he watched him burn and confessing Christ as he burned, Menno Simmons became a believer, and he, a genuine believer, and he began Bible studies and ultimately founded a church and and. And that church, we don't agree with every dotted I and every cross T, but that church has continued on to this day because one man saw another man literally in the fire holding on to his faith. Something must be real about that. And Menno Simmons realized that whatever it is that he has is not something that I have, but I want it. Beloved, are we willing to be a counter-cultural community? Are we willing to spend and be spent? Are we willing to have everything taken away if it means that we may gain Christ, that we may know Christ and him crucified? So I'll leave us with that this morning. If you're here this morning and, and you don't know this Christ, you don't know that what it is that that we hold so highly to, that we regard above everything else. It is that God is the, the ruler of the earth. He, he has created everything. And by his creation, he has ownership rights over it all. Just like that, just like that ag agreement that you clicked okay to whenever you signed into your phone that says, we developed this software, we have a right to tell you how to use it, beloved. God created the earth. He has a right to tell us how to live in it. And yet we have all rebelled against that. We didn't read the terms of agreement. 
And as a result, we are now all sinners, deserving to have our phones taken away from us. That is our lives, to have God's wrath upon us. But you see, because he loves us so much, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, came into the world. God made man, lived among us. He lived a perfect, righteous life. He followed the terms of agreement. And then he went to the cross and he died in our place to take our wrath. He was buried for three days and on the third day, God rose, raised him from the grave to show that everything we need for salvation, everything we need to be right with God was accomplished in Christ. If there was anything else you needed to do, beloved, Christ would still be in the grave. Still paying for your sins with his death. But because he has paid for you, he has risen from the grave. And he's now at the right hand of God offering himself to you as a rescue from the wrath of God. You may have heard that story a thousand times. But you've never responded to it. We respond by turning from our sins, a word that the Bible calls repent. And we respond by placing our faith alone in Christ alone for our salvation. And I don't care if you've heard that a thousand times. If you haven't responded to it, respond to it this morning. Don't let yourself leave this building unless you know Christ as your savior. And beloved, if we're going to be a confessional church, a church that pleases Christ, we must stand on that message. We cannot compromise it. We cannot water it down. We cannot make it user-friendly. We cannot reduce it. We must stand on the gospel of Christ. Will you stand with me? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace toward us. And Lord, if there's one here this morning who does not know you, I pray that this would be the morning that you would faithfully draw them to yourself so that they may know Christ. Don't let them enjoy their lunch. Don't let them sleep tonight until they get this down and they know that they know that Christ is theirs and they are Christ. They belong to him now and they have a savior, a rescue from their sins. Let's sing together. If you have compromised in any way, you want prayer, if you need to know Christ as your Savior, I invite you to come.